Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. everyone, and thank you for joining us for the Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down, discuss what's new and going on in the world of therapeutics. My name is Amber Lene Martirasov, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. With me today are Ben Modrell, Michelle Link-Patterson, and Megan Adelman. So let's get started talking about today's topic and as needed update on asthma management. This has really been a hot topic for the last two years due to some landmark trials and substantial changes to the asthma guidelines. Today, our panelists are primed and ready to help you navigate through the highlights and really focus on the clinical pearls of asthma. Following this podcast, we will have a second podcast in which our team will provide you with clinical cases and walk you through a real life application of the updates in our clinical practices. So let's dive right in, and we're going to begin with, where should you start when treating a patient? Ben, I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit more about the guidelines that you've used for asthma management, and then you can take us from there. Thank you for that introduction there, Amber Lene. And like you mentioned, before we get into that clinical decision-making of patients, it is really important that us pharmacists recognize the guidelines and resources that are available to us for asthma management. And I think the most useful guideline that we have to utilize is the one that's published from the uh, Global Initiative for Asthma, aka GINA, that's G-I-N-A. And they're what we think of as the gold standard for asthma management. And they will publish a new report or guideline annually, and they'll typically have a separate document that states what's been changed since the last report. I think they really do a great job at implementing new literature and recommendations into their guidelines on a year-to-year basis. Um, They also have a separate guideline for those difficult to treat and severe asthma, where they get more into those biologics and advanced treatment. Then another tool that is also useful is the EPR4 uh, work group guideline. So this is a work group that was created from the National uh, Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in 2018, and their major aim was to update the 2007 guidelines that they had created, Um, and they actually just published a 2020 guideline where they talk specifically about immunotherapies, uh, using our ICS and LAMA agents intermittently, and also a lot of different non-pharmacologic strategies for asthma management. So kind of talking about those guidelines, I think it's a good idea to talk about where we started and where we're at now. So if we look back a little bit into our GINA guidelines uh, from 2018 and even before then, they recommended that those patients who fell within their steps one and steps two, they should be using our SABA, the SABA uh, inhalers as a reliever. And then they would go on and say that a maintenance ICS inhaler, that should be considered for our step one patients. And then once a patient got into step two, that's when we would put on that low dose ICS for maintenance. And this is the major area um, within the new treatment algorithm that's changed over the years. And it's changed due to a few landmark trials that have come out. So the first one I want to mention is Sigma-1. So this was a trial that was published back in 2018, and they compared the use of our as-needed uh, budesonide for motorol, which is Simbicort. They compared that to our as-needed terbutaline, which is the uh, SAPA inhaler. And they had patients that were 12 years and older, and they fell within the genus Step 2. So they had about 30 or 3,850 patients, and they split them either into Simbicort as needed, terbutaline as needed, 
or budesonide maintenance plus terbutaline as needed. And the major things that they found here is that using that Simbacor as needed was superior for asthma symptom control compared to the terbutaline group, and it also reduced asthma exacerbations rates. So in fact, the severe exacerbations, they were reduced by about two-thirds in the Simbacort group compared to the terbutaline group. They did find that the Simbacort group was inferior to the bidesonide maintenance therapy, but they do have another uh, study that kind of negates that. So they had sigma-2, which is another AstraZeneca study. In this trial, they looked at Simbacor as needed, and they compared that to the maintenance budesonide and tributylene as needed. And again, these were patients 12 and above, classified within genus step two. And the primary outcome they were looking at was the rate of severe asthma exacerbations. So for the results of this study, they found that the Simbacor being used as needed was non-inferior to our maintenance budesonide therapy. And we saw that both groups had very similar rates of severe exacerbations. Uh, so because of all these awesome findings that they saw in these SIGMA trials, as well as a, a pretty known systematic review that was published, asthma management has shifted towards a SMART treatment approach. So SMART stands for single maintenance and reliever therapy. I've also heard of this being called Symbicort for maintenance and reliever therapy. And Gina is really recommending uh, this SMART therapy for steps three through five. So that's kind of how we started. Uh, Saba was the maintenance, or excuse me, the um, as-needed inhaler. And getting into future guidelines with these new trials, we got, saw a lot of different changes. So the major changes were in the 2019 guidelines, and they were straying away from that albuterol for your as-needed. So instead, they recommend that all adults and adolescents should be receiving an ICS-containing uh, controller treatment. And this can be either regular daily treatment, or if it's a mild asthma, it can be just an as-needed uh, treatment. And I do want to note that this is just for patients that are age 12 and above. Uh, there's not the best evidence with children. And then as far as the 2021 guidelines go, there hasn't been too many significant changes since that large 2019 update. But the big change now is that they have two tracks for patients for following treatment algorithms. So we have track one. So that's where we would use the ICS and for Motorol or Symbicort for our reliever inhaler. And that is the preferred track. But they also have track two as the alternative. And that's when they're using a Saba as reliever therapy. And they only really recommend this track two just if track one is not possible or if the patient uh, prefers this track. I think Gina also has great visuals within their, their guidelines that are really easy to follow. They also have a pocket guide too that will kind of run you through this, this treatment algorithm. So kind of going through each asthma step, we have our steps one and two patients. They should be using our ICS for Motorol just as needed. If you move on to step three, again, using that Symbicor as needed, and you can be using it as our maintenance inhaler. So that's where we see that smart strategy come into play. For step four, that's when you would increase your dose of your ICS for Motorol, and then again, using it as our reliever therapy. Then finally would be step five, and that's when you're thinking about either maximizing your steroid dose, adding on a llama, or thinking about biologics. Thank you, Ben, for reviewing those important updates. I think it's really interesting and 
because we're pharmacists, I think it's important to know that when we refer to ICS fomoterol that or that symbol court, the reason we focus on the fomoterol is because although it's a long acting agent, it has a quick onset similar to albuterol. And so I think an important clinical pearl for us to be able to educate providers and our other team members about is that really you don't want to use smart therapy with just any inhaler, but it does need to be one that contains that fomoterol component so that you're getting that quick onset of action. So now that we've reviewed that, let's go ahead and continue this conversation by discussing some optimal management strategies for patients who really require more than that stage one or stage two approach. I'm going to turn it over to Megan now and have her tell us a little bit more about how do we optimize these patients that aren't very well controlled. So Amber, thanks for that. I think that's a great discussion, especially my realm tends to be in Center for Family Medicine, where ideally we're trying to keep them from the pulmonologist. And I know you similarly practice in a setting that deals a lot with asthma. So I'm looking forward to you chiming in with your practice. One of the first ones or the biggest updates that I always think about is with, we are optimizing therapy that Ben talked about with both inhaled corticosteroids and then adding our long-acting beta agonist along the way. Back in about 2019, we saw the addition of our long-acting muscarinic antagonist, teotropin specifically, being added to the GINA guidelines. This hasn't been included in all of the guidelines yet, but as we continue to see the uptake or the updates to the guidelines, we see this included. Primarily, that when this was added to inhaled corticosteroid and lava combinations, we saw improvements with lung function, overall morbidity with decreased exacerbations. Of note, it's only teotropium or spiriva that's been FDA approved in asthma, so we don't really see the other llamas utilized. And there's some other differentiating features that I think are really pertinent to especially talk with our physicians and other providers that are noted. So specifically, the the Respimat is the only one that's FDA approved for asthma. Amber, again, I think we've talked about this before in your practice. Unfortunately, insurance tends to dictate a lot of what we do. So if an insurance formulary tends to prefer a handy hailer, I think you and I both, and again, Amber, I'll have you weigh in, but we would use a handy hailer if that's what's preferred, but keeping in mind that that would be off-label versus just the rest of that. The other key difference, I think, you know, obviously llamas, we think of one of the cornerstones for COPD maintenance. There are two different dosings between the Spiriva for COPD and the Spiriva for asthma with a lower dose at 1.25 with two puffs once a day for our asthma and then the 2.5 micrograms, two puffs once a day for COPD. There's been some studies that look at higher doses, but I've, I've not seen the higher doses approved for asthma alone for formulary management. So just some, a couple of things to keep in mind, especially when ordering. So if we're, we're looking at llama addition. Probably at that case, you're going to see most of the time either referral to pulmonary or allergy at that point. And Amber, I'm really going to have you weigh into that because that's really where I think your specialty comes into play. And we'll talk about that. But keep in mind, you also have the subcutaneous and the sublingual immunotherapy as an option, depending on where you are. This is where patients receive higher doses of an allergy-containing product that really is more along the lines if they have both that allergy and asthma component. Again, this is probably not something that you're going to see in my practice where we go to family medicine, but you may see a referral to either allergy or pulmonology based upon who is in, who's in your system and who's covered by the, the provider. 
The only other update that I did want to provide that I thought was relatively interesting is that in March of 2020, Montelukast ended up getting a formal FDA black box warning for suicidal ideations. And I bring this up because fairly early stages, including stage two or step two and above, you do see Montelukast as an alternative agent or an additional agent that we can utilize with our inhaled therapies. Interestingly enough, this was always included in the package insert when they updated it in 2008. But I think the reason why the FDA commented on this and made that formal black box warning was that they noted that this was not something that was focused on during counseling sessions or that providers may not have been aware. Interestingly enough, this was approved based off of 82 cases that they reviewed, both pediatric and adult patients. So I highlight this not so much as an update, but something that you probably will see utilized, especially in asthma, because there's such an allergy component to it, that I really argue that as pharmacists, providers, we should be making sure to comment on that. So three main things that I'm focused on, but Amber, again, I think yours is really the interesting portion because once they get through me from family medicine, they're going to pulmonology. What do you really feel like you're seeing as the next steps after that? Yeah, I think, um, Megan, you've done a really great job of summarizing kind of what you might experience or be exposed to in the primary care setting. And, you know, I think it's interesting because a lot of providers that practice in the primary care setting get to a certain point and they say, well, I can't handle this anymore, so I'm going to move them on to pulmonary. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have an understanding of what's going on in these patients and understanding kind of where the drug decision uh, goes from there. I think just to kind of recap on a couple of things that you said, I agree completely with the Spireva conversation. Respimat is what's approved. It's a lower dose. However, in our clinic, we will oftentimes use whatever llama the formulary will cover. We will try for prior authorizations to get that Respimat covered, but if it's not authorized, then we just go with what is covered because sometimes it's more important to get some anticholinergic control for these patients. When we do that, I will say that our pharmacy team closely monitors the patients. And if there is no response within four to six weeks, we will actually stop the anti-muscarinic. And I think it's really important because if you look at the guidelines, the guidelines actually do suggest that if there is no response, you should stop it because then it's not actually benefiting them and you should investigate other things. Moving on into kind of a little bit more of this severe management discussion, I think it's important to understand that when you get into severe asthma, it's actually important to understand that there are some phenotypes and what we need to evaluate uh, and understand to be able to treat these patients is what the phenotype is that the patient's presenting with. And the most common one is type two inflammation. So when we have patients that are poorly controlled, they're having multiple exacerbations, they're requiring multiple bursts of oral corticosteroids or even requiring maintenance oral corticosteroids, what we're really looking at here is type two inflammation. And we know that these patients are not gonna be well controlled on inhaler therapy alone. They likely also won't be well controlled on inhaler therapy plus sublingual or subcutaneous immune therapy and even the Montelukast. And so in order to further treat these patients, what we really need to do is evaluate what their inflammatory markers are, have a real understanding of kind of how they're presenting in the allergic terms, as well as how they are presenting with comorbid disease states. And that leads us into that wonderful guideline that I love and adore from Ben's discussion earlier that is the Gina Severe Asthma Handbook. And what this actually does is it's nice because it's not meant for specialists. In the guideline, it actually says that 
general practitioner should know and use this book as much as possible, which means that even in a primary care setting, although you might refer them, having an understanding, like I said, of these pathways is really going to help you to educate your patients and prepare them for what is coming their way when they do go see a specialist. So this severe pocket guideline, what I love about it so much is that it provides very clear pathways of what you're supposed to do if your patient has type 2 inflammation or if they don't. And in these type two treatments, I think kind of the fascinating thing for us as pharmacists is when we get into the, that monoclonal antibody therapy or the MABs, as we like to affectionately refer to them as. And these MABs, um, there's been a lot of them that have been FDA approved over the last couple of years. And what's great about them is, is that when you look at the data that supports their use, we're getting these poorly controlled patients, one, better controlled, and two, at minimum, reducing their maintenance need for oral corticosteroids, but in a lot of cases, actually getting them off of oral corticosteroids. And as pharmacists, while we love corticosteroids for certain things, long-term use, we all know is a terrible thing, and we would like to keep our patients off of them as much as possible. So rather than go through all of the logistics and the studies, what I think is a little bit more important for our discussion today is how we personalize our MABs. And in order to do that, I'm gonna keep referring to that GINA pocket guide because it, it spells it out clearly for you as a practitioner on what you need to do. What's great about the GINA pocket guide is that it allows you to consider their comorbidities such as atopic dermatitis, nasal polyps, or rhinosinusitis. It also talks about their IgE levels or their eosinophil levels. And then from there, it makes very clear recommendations on which agent you should start first. And then from there, provides clear direction on now we keep them on it for four months, we evaluate their status. And then from there, either we continue them and keep reassessing and start decreasing their medication load if their asthma is well controlled, or if they're not well controlled. Here, now let's go back to the drawing board and restart something else. And I think as a pharmacist, when you have things that are very clear in a stepwise process, it makes treating it a little bit fun because you kind of know what direction you're going to go. My husband always jokes, that's why I don't like infectious disease because I never know what to expect and anticipate. And I like a little bit more clear rules to follow. And I think that this pocket guide does that nice for us. I think the other thing that is important, kind of getting back to what I said about having a conversation with your patients and preparing them for what's coming this guide really focuses on the patient's perspective and helping them understand that they may have to self-administer these medications. And similar to how we would with a diabetic patient, we have to make sure they're comfortable with giving themselves daily injections. And if they're not, maybe they need to go to a clinic where they can be administered in the clinic, or there are options for infusions, which they could do. I think the other thing to help them understand, which will transition nicely into what we're going to talk about next is these medications obviously are very expensive. And so we need to make sure that they're going to fit with a patient's insurance and make sure that they are covered so that the patient can actually get access to these medications. You know, when you think about medications across the board, uh, I feel like pulmonary is a specialty in its own where the cost of drugs are consistently higher. Up until a couple of years ago, we really didn't even have generics in this area. And so the cost of everything was expensive. Inhalers, the MABs, really the cheapest thing we had access to was steroids, which I think gets us in a little bit of trouble every now and again. But what I'd like to do now is kind of transition. And Michelle, if you feel comfortable, could you just kind of tell us a little bit about the things we should be aware of regarding medication access and 
I mean, I know you practice a lot with helping patients get their medications and get them at an affordable price. So I'd like to turn it over to you for some discussion on that. Yes, definitely. Thank you, uh, Amber Lene. This is something that comes up in my practice all the time. Even today, before we recorded the podcast, I got another referral for a patient who couldn't afford their inhaler. So definitely something I'm seeing all the time. When I think about access, there's a couple different issues or topics that I think are important to address. The first thing is understanding the insurance formularies and knowing medications are going to be on higher tiers or lower tiers. And they may have preferred products as well. And all of these things are going to tie into what the patient's copay is going to be. Formularies will also have other limitations. So they may have step therapy where the patient has to try one inhaler first before they can get a different one. Or they may have a prior authorization or a quantity limit that dictates how much of the medication the patient can use. So in my practice, I get a lot of referrals from providers that are asking me what's going to be covered, and then I'll get in touch with the patient, I'll reach out to the pharmacy and the insurance company, and then we'll try to figure out not only what's the best clinical option, but what's the best option that the patient can actually afford. We can recommend any therapy we want, but if the patient can't actually get it from the pharmacy or get it from the drug company, then we won't be able to help that patient through that medication use. It's also important for ambulatory care and community pharmacists to know about the generic inhalers that are available, which Amber Lene mentioned. So there's been generic albuterol inhalers, which have been available for a few years, but there are a couple other generics that have more recently come to market as well. For example, the Advair is probably the brand we know best for fluticasone salmeterol, but there's also the Wixella Inhub, which has the same dosing as Advair and may be less expensive if it's preferred on the patient's formulary. Another example is the AirDuo Digihaler and the AirDuo RespaClick, which are also fluticasone salmeterol, but they're not equivalent to the Advair. So they're not equivalent, but they do have generics. So it's interesting because you really need to be careful and keep an eye on which medications are going to be equivalent to others. So if you're looking to know what's actually you know, equivalent to another drug, the best source is going to be on the FDA's website where you have the orange book. And you can actually search on the website the drug ingredient and it's really easy to navigate for pharmacists. Another tool that I like to use is manufacturer copay cards if they are available. They are available for some brand name medications and the way they work is by taking a maximum dollar amount off of the patient's copay and then the patient will have a minimum amount that they have to spend. But this could be as low as $0 depending on what the card is. As the medications become generic, we do see fewer copay cards, but some are still available because they promote use of the branded medication. Sometimes patients can actually get a lower copay for a branded medication compared to a generic medication. The one thing with these cards, however, to keep in mind is that most patients will be required to either have no insurance or have commercial insurance, because in general, patients that have federally or state-funded insurance plans cannot use this. So that includes our patients who have Medicaid or Medicare. So when I think about my practice and the patients that I get referrals for for uh, medication access, um, I work really closely with our social workers because they're the ones who actually help the patients fill out the applications for the patient assistance programs or PAPs. 
So each manufacturer has their own set of qualifications that the patient needs to meet. So it has to do with insurance, usually no insurance or underinsured. Typically commercial insurance is not allowed. And then they also have income requirements that the patient must meet. So a majority of the patients that I end up referring for PAP applications to the social work team are for patients that have Medicare, but they can't afford their co-pays either because of their deductible or the donut hole. And it, it just becomes too much for them. So once the patient applies for the PAP, if they're approved, the medication comes directly from the manufacturer. And then we either go to the doctor's office or to the patient's house. And then the applications usually have to be renewed every year. I will say that in some instances, documentation requirements have been relaxed a little bit because of the pandemic. But I think over the next year or so, that's probably going to tighten back up again, and it may be a little bit harder in terms of the documentation. So we should keep that in mind. And then the last thing I want to mention is about the difference between a discount card or a copay card. So we see a lot of commercials for GoodRx and other generic discount cards, but these are not tied directly to the drug manufacturers. And when we think about inhalers, the cost is pretty high to begin with. So most patients don't really benefit from using those cards because they don't take enough off of the copay of a cash price. The community pharmacist can either bill the discount card or the patient's insurance, and they can't bill both. So that makes it a little bit tricky. And it gives us a really important role trying to explain to the patient what we can do for them, how it works, and helping them understand each step of the process. Michelle, how is that a little bit different from the MABs? Because I know there are some really important nuances to get those medications approved. Yeah, definitely. So there are definitely some particulars when it comes to the monoclonal antibodies, and this really makes them different than our non-specialty medications. Insurance coverage is often more limited, and patients will usually have to meet a specific list of criteria in order to receive the therapy. And then they may have additional requirements that are needed for continuation of therapy. And this could include things like lab work or follow-up progress notes from the provider. If a medication is approved by the insurance company, usually for these MABs, they'll get up to 12 months and then need to renew with the insurance company. However, because the monoclonal antibodies are considered those specialty medications, they're often filled only at specialty pharmacies, and this could be mandated by the insurance company. So most specialty pharmacies will handle the prior authorizations and the patient assistance program applications if they're needed, but in some cases they may not. In those cases, it may fall on the clinical pharmacist who's in the clinic, either in internal medicine, primary care, or the specialty clinic to kind of help with the access for these patients. So if that's you and you have to help the patient navigate that, I would say go to the manufacturer's website. Um, they make it really clear on how to get a copay card, which patients will be eligible. And then they also have the information about their PAP programs. In addition, there are other programs as well. So like, for example, I work at Penn Medicine. We have a whole financial assistance group that can help patients who are unable to afford their co-pays. And there's other bigger groups too, like Healthwell Foundation and FundFinder, which I use a lot to help patients find copay assistance. Even if their medication is covered, it might still be pretty pricey. So we, anything we can do to help will be beneficial to the patient. 
So just in summary, I think there's a huge need for pharmacists to help with medication access. And this is a role that can be filled by both ambulatory care and community pharmacists. And this really is our way of helping ensure continuity of care and helping patients to navigate such a complex system. Wow, Michelle, that I, I do a lot with access and you've covered a couple of things that are a little bit new to me. So I appreciate that. I think, you know, the other thing that I would just put a shameless plug about monoclonal antibodies is one of the things that's really nice about going to the manufacturer website. If you're going to be helping patients get access to these, or even just you have a patient that's going to be on them, the manufacturer websites actually also provide patients with a nursing call line or a pharmacist call line that help them to understand any of the side effects that they may be having and kind of make recommendations on how to better administer the medication. And so you know, if you have a patient who's saying I'm administering it, but it's hurting, those are things that you could easily get access to through those uh, resources. I think, you know, as a group, we've really covered a lot of really great material. What I would like to do is wrap up our podcast here and ask our panelists if there are any other key points that you want to add with a reminder that we do have a part two to this podcast where we will get into some of the nitty gritty of some patient cases that we've experienced in our own clinics and really kind of delve into those clinical pearls of why I would do this or how I would do this. But before we go there, anything you guys would add? I think for me, really, the point I like to drive home is if the patient can't get the medication, then they can't take it. So that's why it's so important for us to help with access. I love that. Michelle, I feel like you and I like live and breathe like access and how it's so important to our patients. So I'm hearing nothing from our other panelists. So what I would like to do to wrap up this podcast is to thank both our panelists and our listeners for coming and checking out our podcast and hearing what we have to say today. We want to remind you to make sure you check out part two of this podcast so that you can hear us discuss how we would actually implement these guidelines and treat these patients. Also, if you haven't before, I encourage you to check out all of the ASHP ambulatory care resources. You can find member exclusive offerings such as the ambulatory care career tool, certification resources, rotation guides, guidelines, policies, and info on billing and reimbursement. Be sure to also become a member of the section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners Connect community where you can exchange ideas and ask questions from your peers. Thank you again for tuning into this session and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe rate or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.